When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I am currently standing outside 500 Bay Lane in Key Biscayne. It is a gleaming gated home with tall white columns and dark Spanish tile on the roof. On the other side of this building is an unobstructed view of Biscayne Bay and Coral Gables on the other side of the water. The home is owned by Edgardo and Ana Cristina de Fortuna. The couple are president and executive vice president, respectively, of Fortune International Group which is one of the largest luxury real estate companies in South Florida. But they didn't always own this property. And this wasn't always the home that sat on it. When they acquired the property in 2002, they very quickly set about demolishing the old home and building their own. By the end of 2004, it was razed to the ground. But it is that property that is of concern to us today. This day in Miami history. March 30th, 1972 when advisors to President Richard Milhouse Nixon sat in his Florida White House and approved plans to wiretap the Watergate Hotel. The high times and low times, all in the nightlife. will open your eyes. But when the day breaks, you feel the sun kiss. If it's paradise, oh, what you wish. Pound for pound, when looking at American history, I think Watergate is my favorite chapter. I really find it fascinating because it's every part of government and civil society all functioning at the same time, either with each other or against each other. I mean, literally, the climax of the story is a case named United States versus Nixon, where the Congress and the President are squaring off in front of the Supreme Court. Of course, from a local angle, one of the more interesting things about the Watergate break-in at Democratic National Committee headquarters is that four of the five men who were arrested in the early morning hours of June 17, 1972, were from Miami. Virgilio Gonzalez, Frank Sturgis, Eugenio Martinez, and Bernard Barker, all were part of James W. McCord's team, all conspirators to a, quote, third-rate burglary. We'll talk more about that term in just a couple of minutes. So if that's the execution, or lack thereof, of the Watergate plot, what about the planning? Well, Miami played an important role in that as well. To understand all of this, though, it's best to go back to the beginning. Richard Nixon's connection to South Florida began sometime around 1951. In a special report from 1971, Newsday of Long Island reported that Nixon was first coaxed to South Florida by then-new Florida Senator George A. Smathers. 
Nixon was also a freshman senator who was exhausted from the campaign and the grind of time in the U.S. Senate. Smathers sold Nixon on Florida for some quality rest and relaxation, and he also promised to introduce him to his friend, Charles Gregory Rebozo. Rebozo, known as Bebe because he was the youngest of 12 children, was a businessman. He ran a gas station and some laundromats, but eventually decided to get into the banking business, founding the Key Biscayne Bank and Trust in 1964. By the 1960s, Nixon was firmly ensconced in the Key Biscayne scene. In fact, Nixon took one of the most important meetings of his pre-presidential career at the Key Biscayne Hotel. At Key Biscayne, Florida, Vice President Nixon awaits President-elect Senator John F. Kennedy for a post-campaign meeting which Mr. Kennedy arranged to restore the cordial relationship between himself and Mr. Nixon of 14 years standing in Congress and the Senate. Eventually, visits and hotel stops simply wouldn't do. And by the time Nixon was sworn in as the 37th President of the United States in 1969, even though he had what was called the Western White House in San Clemente, California, the Florida White House at 500 Bay Lane on Key Biscayne, would become an essential part of Nixon's travel repertoire. Key Biscayne was one, but not the only, travel destination that the Nixons favored in tropical climes. The second was Grand Key, an island of the Bahamas, where a friend, Robert Ablenalp, owned an estate. Nixon, Rebozo, and Ablenalp were a triumvirate. They stuck together, very good friends. How good? Well, of course, Rebozo and Ablenalp were friends with Nixon before the presidency and during the presidency, but they stuck by Nixon after the presidency, after Watergate. This via WTVJ in the Wolfson Archives from 1979. Former President Richard Nixon paused for some photographs with his flight crew when he arrived by commercial airline in Miami late this afternoon. Nixon was en route from a memorial service for Mamie Eisenhower in Washington to the Walker's Key retreat of his longtime friend, industrialist Robert Ablenalp. Ablenalp and another friend, Key Biscayne banker Vivi Rebozo, joined him in Miami. Grand Key, located just south of Walker's Key, will become an important part of this conversation in just a couple of moments. So we've established that Nixon has a connection to Key Biscayne. What does this have to do with March 30th, 1972? And what does this all have to do with Watergate? Well, it's important to remember that 1972 was going to be a very busy year for Richard Nixon and for Miami. Nixon was facing a re-election campaign. And although the final result wouldn't show it, he had concern about his opposition, not only because of the presidential campaign, but because of the congressional campaign. And he wanted to ensure the Democratic Party had the weakest possible position for its congressional campaigns and for whoever would be the standard bearer for the presidential nomination in 72. And where would those nominations be determined? Where would both the Democratic and Republican Party host their national conventions in 1972? You guessed it, the Miami Beach Convention Center in Miami Beach, about seven and a half miles north as the tropical kingbird flies from 500 Bay Lane. For the Republicans, it would be deja vu, they had nominated Nixon in 1968 at the Miami Beach Convention Center. This was about three weeks before the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago and the whole, the whole world is watching thing. Out. 
After the chaos of Chicago and the unqualified success of Miami in 1968, both parties were eager for sun and fun. So it wasn't just Nixon that was traveling to South Florida. It was most of the major party leadership from both the Democrats and the Republicans, as well as members of Nixon's personal team, political team, and governmental team. And when they were in town, they stayed at the Florida White House. The Nixons acquired the home in 1969, but over the course of the Nixon presidency, a number of improvements were made, including the construction of a $400,000 helipad for easy access to the home. It was a place to be, and members of Nixon's inner circle were there. Three members in particular were there on March 30th, 1972, and that brings us back to that day. One of the amazing things about Watergate, what really makes it a scandal at all, besides just some weird historical footnote, is the presence of the tapes. Richard Nixon's taping system that he had installed in the Oval Office that captured virtually every important moment in the development of the Watergate scandal. And so why would I explain this when I can let then White House counsel John Ehrlichman and President of the United States Richard Nixon do it for me? As we'll hear from Nixon's tapes in just a few seconds, I want to point out a couple of things. One, the audio quality is good, all things considered, but it's not great. So please keep that in mind. The second thing, I will jump in from time to time just to make sure all the pieces are fitting together. This, an audio recording from April 14, 1973, sometime between 5.15 and 6.45 p.m. Ehrlichman and Nixon discussing the plan. Those were four names in very quick succession, so let's make sure we know who the players are. The first name you heard is Jeb Stuart Magruder, a Republican Party operative who in 1972 served as the deputy director of Richard Nixon's Committee for the Re-Election of the President, and Fred LaRue Sr., who was an advisor to Nixon but oddly had no official title in the White House at all. You heard that they were meeting with Mitchell. That's John Mitchell, who had, in 1972, been the Attorney General of the United States, but resigned in order to serve as the chairperson of the committee for the re-election of the president. And they were all there considering Liddy's plan. That's G. Gordon Liddy. Liddy was a lawyer, FBI agent, politician, and bagman. All four of these men would be found guilty of federal crimes and serve time incarcerated after the Watergate scandal. I just wanted to make sure you heard that last part clearly. G. Gordon Liddy planned to bug three places, not one. The Watergate Hotel, home of Democratic National Party headquarters, the headquarters of presidential candidate George McGovern, and the Fontainebleau Hotel on Miami Beach. Why the Fontainebleau? Because the Democratic Party had booked blocks of rooms at the hotel for their convention in 1972. The Watergate break-in in June 1972 wound up being the end of Liddy's plan. But in his original vision, it was only the beginning, and Miami was the culmination. In the 
Even though Fred LaRue and John Mitchell deny to their dying day that there was any confirmation of an approved plan at that meeting, Jeb Stuart Magruder testified in front of Congress under oath that there had been an approval. And, as you just heard, the White House was also under the impression that Mitchell had approved this plan at Key Biscayne on March 30, 1972. Even though he may have been, quote, bulldozed into doing it, the wheels began to turn. A timeline prepared by the Office of Planning and Evaluation in its investigation into the FBI's conduct during the Watergate investigation prepared a timeline and described the events like this. Magruder has testified that at this meeting, Mitchell approved the intelligence plan which included wiretapping and authorized a budget of $250,000 for these projects. Liddy didn't have to go too far to plan the break-in. He just had to drive back over the Rickenbacker Causeway and get back to Miami. From there, he found two former CIA agents who had intimate familiarity with goings-on in Cuba. That's James W. McCord Jr. and E. Howard Hunt. They would interact with the Cuban-American refugee community, find other members who had experience with counterintelligence operations, and attempt to set the trap. But all that work and all that money and all that effort was undone by one 24-year-old security guard who saw a piece of tape. Here, Frank Willis describing to Geraldo Rivera what he did at the Watergate in the early morning hours of June 17th. 1972. Well, I checked the basement floor and I found a small piece of uh, adhesive tape placed across the latch of the door. Um, I found the first piece of tape. I took it off and I put it in my pocket and I continued making my security check within the building. When I went back the second time to check, I discovered that one of the doors that I had removed the tape from had been retaped within 10 or 15 minutes. And I called Metropolitan Police and I you know, reported that I thought something was suspicious. And they came. We discovered that a door that led compl- directly into the uh, Democratic National Committee headquarters has been, was broken into. While, go- while going in, they discovered that there was some men behind the petition, and they asked them to come out with their hands up, and uh, that was the rest. While all of this is happening, where is Richard Nixon? It's a good question. Maybe he's at the White House, plotting and scheming eagerly awaiting the results of the plot. Well, he wasn't in Washington, D.C. In fact, he wasn't even in the United States at all. You know where he was by now. He was at Grand Key. He was with his friend, Robert Ablenalp. Most of the rest of his leadership team, you guessed it, Key Biscayne. Seeing a front-page story in the Miami Herald with the headline, Miamians held in D.C., tried to bug demo headquarters. Alfred E. Lewis, not Bob Woodward, not Carl Bernstein, with the first major newspaper story on the Watergate break-in. That story appeared in the Washington Post and appeared in the Miami Herald. The day after that story was published, Press Secretary Ron Ziegler, who we mentioned earlier in the episode, was asked about the break-in. His now-famous comment 
that it was a, quote, third-rate burglary was given at Key Biscayne. When Nixon finally returned to the Florida White House, he read about the story in the New York Times. According to H.R. Holderman, an advisor to the president, his first reaction wasn't worry. It was amusement. His initial reaction? Reach out to Jeb Stuart Magruder. See what he might know about all of this. Well, he certainly knew a lot, more than enough, to eventually end the presidency of Richard Nixon. As always, I want to give a quick acknowledgement to the really important resources needed to make an episode like this. First off, the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and its collection of Watergate material, including declassified FOIA'd FBI documents, as well as the Richard Nixon tapes themselves. I also want to acknowledge Malcolm Farnsworth. He is an Australian who is very passionate about Watergate and started the website watergate.info. It's really invaluable if you want to learn more about one of the most fascinating chapters in American history. Every episode of This Day has at least one source from the Wolfson Archives at Miami-Dade College. Again, as always, thank you to them for their amazing work of preservation. And as always, I want to thank you, the listener, for checking out another episode. Please remember to subscribe to This Day in Miami History in your preferred podcast provider if you haven't already done so. And if you feel up to it, a positive review would be amazing. So until next time, thanks again for listening. And I've been Matthew Bunch. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.